0: I was actually on Craigslist the other day looking at something and there was an ad specifically for an iPhone director of photography and if this doesn't make you want to quit the industry I don't know what will. Like on a resume somewhere somebody's like I've directed four features three of which were on the iPhone. One was, one was on an iPhone 5. The rest are on an iPhone 6, so I'm up to date on the latest cinematic technology.
1: If you build it, they will come.
0: This makes me want to take an iPhone and smash it through somebody's face.
1: That reminds me, have you seen the new Hardcore Harry? It was amazing. Cinematic Community! Overload, I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic, cinematic community. Just tell people not to swing the mic around, <laughs> that's a good, that's, that's a good point, you know,
0: I have no problem with you telling people that, that seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked.
1: Yes, we are rolling, we are rolling because we are going to talk about Libby Ward, our fun time, because that's what we do here on this show, we have a fun time she's a comedian a writer a
0: sayer of funny things she's on twitter she twitters more in a day than I've ever twittered in my life
1: <laughs> She's got a lot of talent, she's got a lot of personality, and uh, we had a really good time. I uh, was we just laughing about dinosaurs on roller skates and all sorts of cool fun things. She does a Scooby-Doo. We, uh, we did a lot of callback in this episode, trying to keep it improvisational and funny. I'm always trying to be funny. Chuckles? Don't call me Chuckles. <laughs> it's your nickname, Chuckles. I'm Brian Chuckles Chuckles Hard. Well, folks, sit back and relax. We're going to have a good time with Libby Ward. And uh, if you want to check us out while you're listening to the show on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, any of that fun stuff, uh, our handles are immunity, uh, immunity Podcast. And of course, our home on the web is www.cinematicimmunitycast.com.
0: Lewis, why should people check out the website? Is there uh, anything we... new on it?
1: So, Brian, there are lots of valuable tidbits to pick up on the site, and you can do so by checking our searchable database at www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. If you go there and check out the home page, you can see some of our recent episodes, and you can also check out our blog, and you can easily find the access for our social media network uh, links. We've got Instagram, and that's uh, Immunity Podcast. We've got Twitter, which is also Immunity Podcast. Uh, easily searchable and then of course uh, please check out our Facebook page we are posting uh, we are posting different stuff every week uh, linking to different things we find useful out there so please check us out at our website www.cinematiccommunitycast.com
0: and every thousand people who show up Lewis will give $1,000 to a sweepstake winner. <laughs> I am announcing that contest right now. Subject to terms and availability. <laughs> yeah, no We're not supposed to talk during this thing, right? We just like, get to listen? You
2: just, yeah, <laughs> she's just going just 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 to regale
0: monologue. us with her stories. Yeah. You've got a 90-minute story, right?
1: That's... Yeah. insanely funny, right? <laughs> yeah. No pressure. No pressure. Welcome, Libby. Yes, we have begun. Oh, great. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, we have uh I guess um we have a fond interest for a lot of different angles to- towards how this uh how this all this stuff comes together. So, yes. and Brian's been trying to get you on the show for a long time. Um and uh and we're happy to have you She's here.
0: too we big now. It. She's too big now. She's like I ain't coming on that. Forget it.
2: You're like Alice in Wonderland, when she eats the eats the cake and she takes up the whole house. <laughs> it's tough getting in here.
1: Well, welcome. What was the magic antidote for the uh, for the cake? Was it a like a like a bottle of uh, oil or something I, like that? I
2: think it was. It was a bottle of something. There's like an, <laughs> an eat me cake and a drink me bottle, which of scotch? Yes, which which as you know, when you see something that's labeled, you have to obey its orders regardless <laughs> of what it is. Anytime so. I
0: see a sign that says eat this or drink this, I just do it. Yeah. I assume they had my interest at heart.
2: Yes. Your best interest in mind.
0: Absolutely. And it goes because you're a very trusting guy in general. And a big guy as a result because people (laughs) keep putting signs in front of cakes saying eat this and it's caused a lot of problems.
2: Yeah. Whenever I see a sign that says slide area like on the freeway, I'm always expecting there to be an awesome playground. And there Ooh. never is. It's, very, it's, it's a consistent disappointment for or, me. Or you
0: could just start doing donuts in your car. Why aren't you, you know, turning it into a slide area for you?
2: Yes. I'm sure my, my Volkswagen Beetle would not be any, any poorer for all of those donuts I'm doing on the freeway.
0: Everybody just, does stunts in their Volkswagen Beetle. Everybody does that.
1: you got to use that e-brake. Just, yep. just, just rock it. That's what the Germans are known for is their e-brake. turning radius. <laughs> yes. The precision. Absolutely. Precision and their gas mileage. Well, zing. Precision of several things. Anyway,
2: how <laughs> been?
0: how's everything going?
2: Uh, really, really great. We actually were just chatting. We got into the Pasadena Film Festival with our short film, The Audition, which is directed by Mark Kirkland, who just finished his 80th episode of The Simpsons as a director. Wow. Right. He, he's the record holder, he's the record holding champion.
1: Has uh, do you think things have calmed down uh, over there? At, like working on a show like The Simpsons, seeing as how like they, they're they're just kind of off and running. They're pretty much a well-oiled machine.
2: I think so. Uh, from what I understand, having just been a a nearby bystander, they uh, they're. they're very much well oiled, as you say, but they're also trying to save their pennies and they're switching production companies again because Film Roman just got sold. So um, they're just trying to to get everything that's in the hopper all finished up and polished up and and off to Korea where they do all of their in between. That
1: was the next question I was gonna ask yeah. was, are they still sending it off to Korea to have to, to do all of the act the, you know, the other the back half of the animation.
2: Yeah. And uh, as far as I understand it, anyway. And um, Mark, because he's been there for such a long time and has many other interests, he's actually also going to be doing a talk at the Pasadena Film Festival about antique cameras. His dad, uh, Douglas Kirkland, was a famous photographer, celebrity photographer. I guess he still is. He's still alive and still photographing. And uh, so Mark is going to talk about his antique cameras and his love of photography and of shooting things. And our film that he and I did together, the audition, is actually live action. And so he's sort of transitioning his career to do something different and borrow all of those gems that he learned from working on The Simpsons for so long to, um, to have beautiful, beautiful cinematography in live action.
0: When is the Pasadena Film Festival?
2: Oh, no, I failed. I'd have to look it up. It's coming up in a couple months.
0: All right. The show might be out in time for that. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) I was hoping you were going to say like February 12th and be like, oh, the show's definitely not going to come out by then. So don't bother.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, before we get into uh, Brian's most uh, favorite part of the show, Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: My favorite part of the show is the ending, incidentally. I don't know if you I, I would have had catch had you that every time we Tell record. us how you got started. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead.
2: So with that incredibly broad uh, general question, I will start by saying I am an incredibly curious person, and I love adventure. I actually just finished reading Roald Dahl's boyhood memoirs and thought we would be terrific friends because he just wanted to go learn things and explore faraway places and and build things. And I enjoy all of that. And part of the nice thing about that as a writer professionally is that um, one thing that is an excellent piece of advice I received, I'll skip ahead to to what I suspect is coming later, is uh, as an improviser, I've been told not to invent but to remember, which I feel like is especially easy for me because I try to consume experience all the things so that when I'm crafting a story, I can go, oh, yes, of course, I remember what the Sistine Chapel looks like because mm-hmm. I was there. And of course, I remember being on a boat in China because I was on a boat in China. So I can draw from a lot of my weird personal experiences. Awesome.
1: What? Um- Are
0: there any other questions you want to answer before we ask <laughs> them? Just to get that out of the
1: way. Yes, yes, and maybe?
2: Yes, purple, Stegosaurus. Oh.
1: <laughs> God, damn it, she got the Stegosaurus question. Sorry. And she got you on that one, man. Um,
2: very intuitive.
1: So with that, what, mm-hmm. what, are some of, uh, what are some of your outlets?
2: Some of my outlets, uh, creatively, uh, of course. Well, certainly writing. I'm uh, on Scooby-Doo right now at Warner Brothers, which is super exciting for me because I love animation. It's my very favorite. And uh, zany hijinks and nerdy jokes are two of my favorite things to write, and the combination of those is magical. So that's my very favorite. Of course, uh, short films, we have the audition coming up. I just finished the directing and production stage of four additional comedy shorts, and we're all in post-production on those, hooray. And I'm also an artist. Um, Printmaking, when I have the facilities and capability, it always requires a lot more, a lot more Equipment and space, but sometimes just drawing or painting. And I'm a drummer, and we play actually every Sunday night. Uh, my boyfriend Ben, who plays piano, and our friend James Eason, who plays saxophone, play at the Varnish in the back of Coles downtown. Plug that in, yep. All right, so come out and come out and hear some jazz, drink, <laughs> drink some scotch, drink you know, some scotch in a little some bottle some whiskey, that says, yeah. Drink me. <laughs> Uh,
1: what was Raoul Dahl's uh, famous novel or famous book? It wasn't Alice in Wonderland. That was Lewis Carroll. No,
2: he has several. James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach. The Fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox is okay. one of my favorites. Also, speaking of animation, I thought that was especially well done the uh, with George Clooney. And I didn't
0: see it. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is his. Mm-hmm. No? Charlie the Chocolate Charlie Factory
2: is Factory. his. Yeah. Yeah, he's America's or the world's, I guess, favorite writer. I'm not sure who they polled, but... Uh, He's, he's a favorite.
1: He is a worldwide favorite.
2: And in reading, and this is something I, I love to do, in reading his nonfiction, it is very clear to me where he is remembering things for his fiction stories so that he can use uh, moments that he's already experienced in James and the Giant Peach, despite not having actually been inside a giant peach. But I like to go back and read the source material for inspired projects whenever possible.
1: Proper research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Brian, lay it on her.
2: Lay it on me.
0: In the past, women comedy writers were a very rare demographic in Hollywood. We're jumping right into it now. This is the lifetime moment mm-hmm. part of the show. Yes. How has that been changing over the
2: years? Interesting. You should ask that particular question because uh, one of my passion projects right now is about that very subject and kind of kind of specifically about Clara Bow who wasn't a a writer. She was an actress, the it girl, the Hollywood it girl in the silent era. But in all of my research, I've discovered that where women are in the industry, like in cast and crew and above and below the line and being pictured on screen as characters, we're just now coming back to where we were in 1915. And a large part of that has to do with the Hollywood code the production code that was championed by the Catholic Coalition, which started in 1934 and ended, I'm pretty sure, in 1976. But they basically, women, uh, the flappers of the early 20th century, were loose and fancy-free and having sex because they liked it and smoking because they wanted to. And bobbing their hair. And bobbing their hair, riding bicycles. (gasps) So, (laughs) so shocking after the Victorian age and the Catholic Coalition shut it all down. And uh, and when sound came into pictures, it also um, a lot of the boys' club showed up and said, "Oh, women don't understand sound. That's technological. So get all these women directors and these women writers because they were extremely prolific in the silent era. Uh, female comedy writers and comedians and directors, editors. And so we're just now building right back up to that place now, which I find shameful and interesting." Uh, but I, I appreciate that uh, there's a spotlight right now being shined on female comedians, comedy writers, uh, performers, crew members of all types, and on minority in all the same jobs. Absolutely. Because we're missing a lot of voices, and uh, hopefully we won't be soon.
0: You've been in a bunch of writers' rooms now. Break break down the percentage of women in them. Are you? Do you find yourself alone in them, or is it—
2: I I have not had as many experiences in a writer's room proper as I would have liked. I prefer to work in a room with a bunch of people, but often on the shows that I've worked on, it's more of a freelance situation. Uh, mostly, I think, because it's easier to pay freelancers less and not have to pay payroll taxes and pay health care and all these other things. So a lot of times there are not... There are not as many women on the freelance list unless I'm at the top of that freelance list and I'm the one doling out the assignments. And I know a lot of very talented female writers. And so I'll dole out the assignments to the most talented writers that I happen to know, whether they're male or female. But uh, because I have a, maybe a wider circle of, of female writers than perhaps a male writer might have, then I think it's easier for me to, to hand out those assignments to excellent women
1: going back to your when you first started writing Mm -hmm.
2: uh,
1: how has that changed from then what was it like back then
2: well I would say I've been writing for a very long time I have been making a consistent living at it for about three years so back
1: was there like an odd overlapping time where you were pushing off of something else and into writing and you were you know just meeting with every writer's group that you could and you were you know, working with a bunch of different teams?
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Probably around 2011-ish would be that time for me. Uh, For a long time, I knew I wanted to do comedy. I always knew I wanted to do comedy since I was three and I was a big fan of Kermit the Frogs. In fact, I intended to work for Kermit the Frog, and I did in 1999 as an intern at, at Henson in development, which was
1: awesome. Swamp Years was coming out around that same time. Mm-hmm. What other, what other, uh, what other Jim Henson projects were you working on in 1999?
2: You know, there are a bunch of projects that were in development, and uh, I don't know if I'm allowed or unallowed to say them. Shall I? Fifteen years later. Well, I know they were working on uh, the Hoobs and on Farscape, and those things are are actually produced but there were a bunch of things because I was in development that I loved that I would love to still see developed but there was a a big company shift with Henson at that time going um, from EMTV which is German company that owned them and then all the Henson kids buying up the company and then Disney coming in and so none of the things that I was championing for development ended up getting produced because there was just a big empty development uh, black hole for a little while. So hopefully those things will, will s- resurface because they were excellent properties. But to your, your question about writing, I didn't know how to go about being a writer at that time. Back there in 1999, I was writing stuff to make it. And I was working in every other facet of the industry. Of course, I was a PA. I did some Foley. I did some score composing. I did some animating and was just sort of trying to, you know, keep keep putting my amoeba-shaped peg in all the various Hollywood spaces and see where it actually fit. And part of it I think was that I wasn't really allowed to watch television when I was a kid. I did sometimes, but it it didn't occur to me that television had writers and that it was usually a collaborative effort, which is my favorite part of it. And I thought about writing films, but that's a long, long process and usually a more solitary one. So it wasn't until uh, as we hop back up to 2011, once I started realizing by listening to things like uh, Nerd Melts or not Nerd Melts, The Nerdist Writers Panel.
1: Preaching to the choir over here.
2: Nerdist Writers Panel, which is excellent. Uh, Making (coughs) it with Ricky Lindholm, which also is similar to this podcast. I don't think she's doing hers anymore. And started realizing that TV writing is not only a real job, it's a collaborative job. It's a job I've kind of been doing all this time, but not not working hard enough to get paid for it. So I should try getting paid for it as soon as possible. So that was, yeah, that was the the big shift where I was like, hey, wait a minute.
1: Yeah. Um, tell us about your podcast for just a minute, if you would.
2: Yeah, I have a podcast called Occupassionate. And uh, as the title suggests, I interview people who are passionate about their occupations. Uh, you can find it, of course, on Stitcher and iTunes and on the website, com. And the idea behind it, it's a passion project that I've always wanted to do and just sort of was waiting till I could gather the resources. The idea is to inspire the aimless and sate the curious, meaning anybody, usually youth, who doesn't know what they want to do with their lives. Or maybe they do know they want to be a writer, but they don't know that television writing is a thing and a collaborative thing and a sometimes lucrative thing. They can hear from all these people who do all these different jobs and go, oh, beekeeping sounds awesome. I should be a beekeeper or I love juggling. I can do that for a living. That's <laughs> so cool. I have like a commercial airline pilot, I have a climate scientist, a neuroeconomist, a That's rabbi, good. and and sating the curious is mostly for me and and my ilk, which I believe you fall into of uh
0: you've also got a train man. Zoe was gushing about how that was her favorite episode (laughs) of all of them. The train man episode.
2: Yeah, I learned so much from from him. He's a uh yeah train conductor and then engineer because you don't you don't get to be one until you've been the other and you have to be a brakeman first. And that was actually
1: Zoe, I told you there are a bunch of titles. It's not the caboose Mm -hmm. man. It's the brake man. Well,
2: that was actually a listener request, and so I went went off searching, uh, searching my friends for their friends who might possibly work on the railroad. Right on all the live long day. <laughs>
0: You touched on it slightly, but there was clearly a period of writing a lot of spec scripts and trying to get into the guild mm-hmm. and various various hurdles that people have to take in that climb. Can You talk about that a little bit of sort of flyers you made trying to do it. What are some of the pitfalls? Did you have?
2: Sure. Well, an interesting thing, and of course, everybody has to has to choose their own journey and whatever's right for them and I actually have a place in Seattle and I love Seattle and I was hesitant to leave Seattle I also played on the Seahawks drum line going back to the the drumming which was super duper fun and I hated to leave leave that wonderful group of people so I was and I was working for the airline at, at the time so that was convenient I could fly for free so I was actually commuting here every week Um, this was around 2009, 2010, I guess, and doing all the improv I could do, um, UCB and IO and I wrote with top story weekly at IO and hanging out with groups of creative people because certainly there are wonderful creative people in Seattle, but you don't
1: have the infrastructure like you have here with IO and all the other improv groups. Sure.
2: Sure. And just the, the saturation of, of creative minds literally everywhere you look. So I was coming down here and, uh, and working with all of these different groups and sort of also rebuilding the network that I had a little bit of back when I was here with Henson, but had not done the best job ever keeping in touch with people. So during that time, I was also writing specs and reading all the scripts I could and transcribing scripts, uh, which was recommended to me by my mentor, Ken Levine, who at that time I only knew via his, uh, his also telephone, teleconferences and, and advice. Now I know him personally. I'm lucky to have him as a mentor. But um, wrote five or six or seven specs for a variety of different shows. And there's a, a bunch of fellowships, none of which I've been in. I have lots of friends, but ABC, NBC, uh, CBS has a diversity fellowship. Nickelodeon has a writer's fellowship, which is open right now until February 26th. Maybe we'll we'll miss it by the air date, but there's always next year.
1: We're trying. We're trying to get these podcasts out.
2: No, no no worries. I'm not worried about it. All these things will loop back around. (laughs) But uh, but for anyone who's interested, you want to look for all those fellowships. And although even the people I know who've been in the fellowships, most nobody's. Nobody that I know has, like, immediately gotten a job out of the fellowship. It leads to good experience. Several of them pay. And in my case, I still send out to the fellowships, even though I've been a working writer for three years, because I think it never hurts to have more people read things. If you can get someone to not only see your name pass across their desk, but if you can get them to actually read it, then when your name comes up again, there'll be that recognition.
1: Right. It's, uh, it's like that um, that two degrees of separation, like... People are aren't going to people are way more likely to hire someone if they heard your name from a friend. Yes. You know, uh, or if in your case, if they see their name, go, your name go across it enough times, they might actually pick it up and see what's in there.
2: Yeah, that's that's the hope. I'm not entirely sure how well that works, at least not with the <laughs> fellowships. But I have seen the name recognition work in my favor in other circumstances.
1: Absolutely. You know, it goes back to that whole who, who you know, thing.
2: Yep. Mm hmm. Did that answer your question absolutely okay
0: you're doing a fine job
2: i want you to know that you too
1: so uh can we talk
2: a little bit about improv Mm and how that uh how
1: that affects your uh your work like Uh, tell us a little bit a little bit about the the history of your of your improv experience
2: so i actually started improvising back in like 1994 with a group called theater sports in seattle i started taking classes i think i saw like one show. And I was like, these guys are being weird and hilarious and clearly having an awesome time. I should do all of those things. So I took classes at Theater Sports, which is still in the market theater in Pike Place Market. And uh, and I still have friends there, which is lovely. And then I played with their Sunday company for a while. And that was, it was short form improv, but it wasn't quite as gaggy as some short form teams. It, Because part of the thing that I loved about theater sports versus, um, let's say, comedy sports or some of these other short form is that there was no necessity to try to be funny. Mm -hmm. It was always be organic, which is something that has come up many, many times in my improv training at every theater where I've trained. So I did a lot of short form fun games, hijinks, nerdiness for a bunch of years in Seattle with uh, both theater sports. And we had a group called The Tokens in Tacoma, Washington. And then I guess I fell off of improv a little bit um, in the early 2000s. And I did stand-up for a little while. They're very different muscles and oh, yeah. and both incredibly interesting and challenging. But uh, the thing that I don't like about stand-up is that in order to be an awesome stand-up comic, you have to tell the same joke many times to many different audiences and finesse it and hone it and, and know the energy of the audience and how you should tell it to those people. Excuse me. And I don't like telling the same joke over and over again because I like creating new things. As a writer, I'd be happy to write jokes for someone else and say, Lewis, go out and tell this joke all over town and tell me how it goes. But uh, I don't want to be the one that's literally doing the reps. So, you like
1: it to feel fresh.
2: Yeah. And, and I love, as I have mentioned before, I love the collaborative effort. And so I went back to improv by way of flying every week back here to go to UCB, which was the first, first improv theater since the 90s.
1: UCB, uh, the short term for Upright Citizens yes. Brigade over on Franklin Street. It's a great spot. They have shows all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always loved every show, pretty much every show I think I've been to. Yeah. Over at the the UCB?
2: Yeah, certainly excellent, excellent theater. And uh, so that was the first one where I started training. And and I loved even more the opportunity to build things piece by piece with my colleagues and to do something fresh every time. And if it's terrible, it's all gone. And if it's great, it's still all gone. And you can try to strive to be even better the next time. And then I studied um, at IO. Here and then I went and studied at IO in Chicago and uh, writing. I studied writing and early improv at Second City Chicago, and then when I moved back here to LA, I did the conservatory at Second City.
1: Again, the IO being Improv Olympic. Yes, uh, they have a spot here in Hollywood, and uh, they're very well known. I've I've probably gone to the IO over sixty times myself. Yeah, I followed a, a troupe doing their. Um, uh, they did uh, the the, uh, the cage match mm-hmm. over there, and they won fifty fifty two times, they won for a year straight. So for every week, they would go up against another team, long form improv, twenty minute set to versus another twenty minute set. Mm-hmm. The audience votes, and they were able to smash it up there for, for for a whole year. And I made as many of those shows as I possibly could. Plus, I just I went a whole bunch of other times. So I'm a big fan of the Improv Olympic over here. So yeah,
2: was that uh, that that long long running cage match? Was that Jamie Moyer's team by chance?
1: They had. Um, I think Jamie Moyer's team was the next one to run on. And because uh, they they were improv, they would go up against Elron Jeremy, which is the team that I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, a lot of it has to do it's with a funny name. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, 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 that's how
2: improv teams teams work.
1: They um, uh, so they won for a year, and then yeah. the next group went and they ran for a year. And I think I think they after a year they just retired the team. You know, like okay, cool, let's let's get another team to come in. Yeah. So I I think that that's what that was.
2: Yeah, and uh, and Jamie Moore the improviser not the baseball player. I will uh I will make the distinction, but uh, I highly recommend if you're hanging around LA and you get a chance to go improvise with Jamie. She is an an excellent teacher. I think she's incredibly supportive and I appreciate that very much about her.
1: And you should. Yes. Go improv. Indeed. <laughs> the first rule of improv is
2: yes and.
1: And the second rule of improv is yes and. <laughs> Anyway,
2: moving on. Rules. Rules are there are no rules. Yeah. But Uh, but you are correct. Don't talk about Fight Club. What? Yes. (laughs) I can't can't tell you about Fight Club. (laughs) Until after.
0: Let's talk about some of the hilariously titled shows you worked on. Like (laughs) Sex Set Me to the ER or I Still Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. Yes. Which I believe is the (laughs) continuation of I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant and will be followed by I Still Don't Know I'm Pregnant.
2: It is. And it turns out it's the same woman in these episodes who was pregnant once and had a surprise birth and then was pregnant again and was surprised again, because these are clearly people who do not pay attention to their own bodies in the least. These
1: are things that sneak up on you. (laughs) Not when Oprah's on.
2: I guess so. Yeah. Uh, Yes, not all of my writing, thankfully, is about reproductive regret, but... uh, these these shows <laughs> Although you're working hard to correct that I assume yeah, yeah. All of you, you,
0: how great would it be my entire career my entire career <laughs> was about reproductive mistakes
2: yes I like to keep it classy <laughs> <laughs> uh, sex sent me to the art. it was definitely fun to work on because there was we did the recreation scripts and so we had these back back to the zany hijinks but now they're zany x-rated hijinks And it's on TLC, so despite being X-rated hijinks, we had to do whatever we could to not actually show, reveal anything. So for instance, if uh, someone was having sex in in a motorcycle garage, you didn't see them having sex, you saw the uh, the Harley over in the corner shaking and the headlights flickering <laughs> and uh, a bunch of tools sliding off the shelf and you know ding ding whatever ding, euphemism wrench. you can make up mm-hmm. on the day yeah. yeah so that was fun and uh, and we didn't usually say penis vagina nipples we usually thought of euphemisms for that as well so it was all it was all a big romp in the area of sexual based puns so there was one day that I was happy to pool my, my group of comedy writing nerds on Facebook and say, euphemisms for male nipples, go. <laughs> and got chess pepperoni and joy <laughs> buzzers and uh, baby volcanoes and all kinds of awesome nonsense. Is baby that-
1: volcanoes is awesome. I think that they're all pretty good. Yeah, that part- Chess pepperoni is pretty good.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a big long list because that particular script, I had written nipples in the script like 40 times because... The really unfortunate circumstance of that was that the I think it was their wedding night, but the girl had gotten extra ravenous. She was eating cake off her new husband's chest and bit off his Uh. nipple and it had to be sewn back on. Uh. So so because it was all about his nipple, I had to write nipple a bunch of times. And then I went back through. It was like, ah, it says nipple 40 times. If this were a drinking game, I'd be dead. So uh, I had to go back through and, and sub in chest pepperoni and, and joy buzzers.
0: <laughs> Although future book idea, sex euphemisms. Yes. Just saying. I get 10%. That's my idea.
2: Thank you. 10% is yours.
0: You were a challenge producer on something called Idiot Test. Yes. Which we- Zoe also says is hilarious.
2: Which, uh, oh, well, thank you very much. So I appreciate that. I hope you love all the animals in Top Hats because that's my... My favorite, the nice thing about Idiot Test is that it's a visually based game. It's played basically on a gigantic iPad. And two contestants, well there's a there's a bunch of different rounds, but basically two contestants go head to head, or two teams mm-hmm. rather, go head to head in answering what we don't really call riddles, but are kind of riddles. Like one of the ones, and I'll, I'll, I'll give away the answer because it's already been on the air. Um, what makes what brightens Trevor T-Rex's birthday most. And in the picture, I have Trevor the T-Rex wearing a birthday hat, and there's a picnic table with some roller skates and a reacher grabber, which you would need if you were a T-Rex, and, and the cake with the candle, and the answer is the sun, which is out in the background. So they're a little not that hard, but when the clock is ticking and dun-dun-dun, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know, he needs roller skates. <laughs> I think he needs all of those things. But, uh, but that was the fun part about it was that it was really visual. And I don't know if Game Show Network appreciated my animals and hats as much as I did. Uh, as I've mentioned, animation is my favorite thing. So I think everybody thing creature should have its personality and fulfill its destiny and be however dapper or hipster or uh, sporty... A T. Rex might be, and uh, I don't know if Game Show Network bought into that as much, but uh, I think they at least appreciated my my puzzles, so that's good.
1: That's all right. Uh, that's a, uh, all a healthy part of the repertoire. Is yes. Uh, to keep it uh, to keep it fresh, as you said.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, so, you wrote a children's book.
2: I did. Um, I can only talk a little bit about that. I was actually meeting last night with uh, Jenny Lou Tugan, who is my, my partner and a producer in that. And she, my, one of my favorite things about Jenny is that she is the producer of two big franchises, which uh, you will recognize right away as being perfect for one another. They are Lethal Weapon and Free Willy.
1: So as I
0: have them right on my shelf, right next to each other.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, I've, I've thought of that many times before. I always said, why couldn't we get those two together? Why yeah. can't we shoot We're this whale Lethal Lethal Willie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Lethal willy? Yep. That, that also sounds New book like idea. reproductive New book regret. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> lethal willy. Yes, as, as we've mentioned, my whole career is reproductive regret. Lethal, <laughs> lethal willy coming next fall. Uh, so, yes, yeah, she had found this illustrator who she really likes called Romy. And Romy does these beautiful... Uh, watercolor paintings, mostly of animals. And so we're working on developing a book uh, using all of our ideas, talents, etc. And I think, that's all, I think that's all I'm allowed to say about it. But yeah. we're, we're out pitching and, and checking with publishers and we'll definitely update you when hopefully we're published and you can read it.
1: So you're working in all these different mediums. You've got animation happening. You've got a children's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did uh, The Forger which yes. is uh, a true story of a Jewish graphic artist who helped people uh, escape from death camps.
2: Yeah, Joseph Bau is the is the name of the, the forger who was a Polish Jew and l- lucky enough to be an excellent artist. And so while he went with his family and everybody else to, uh, to I suddenly forgot the name of the camp, but uh, outside of Krakow, he... Uh, was put to work doing signs and maps and graphic design instead of breaking rocks and hauling things and doing more manual labor. But because of his job, he was able to be sneaky and forge uh, release papers for a lot of people. And he actually stayed in the camp, even though he could have forged his own release papers, stayed in the camp to get as many people out as possible. And that one is still floating around somewhere in pre-production. I did. Did a draft of the script, and I'm not really sure what the uh, again, like we mentioned with feature film, it it takes much longer. Television is a much faster moving machine, which I love about it, and so I think it's definitely a wonderful film. and hope that it gets made, and I'll, uh, I'll have to check in and see.
1: Let us know the
2: what's what stage it's reaching.
1: So here's where I'm going with this: you okay. have a whole bunch of different mediums that you're working mm-hmm. in. How do you determine what? The work is that you're writing. How do you determine where that's going to go, or what? How do you visualize You know, do, is it like as you're writing it, you visualize it a certain way? How do you figure out? Oh, this would be good for the stage, or this would be good for to animate. Oh, this okay. would be good as a live production.
2: I I think that is incredibly difficult to do to figure out what the best media is. In the case of most of my resume that we just discussed. I came on as a writer on someone else's project that they were producing. So like the book, Jenny said, would you like to write this book? And I said, yes. And I will help you uh, publicize it. And, uh, you know, with the forger said, would you like to write the feature film? There, there are a few books that Joseph Bao already wrote, which I read as research, of course, his personal memoirs. And so, yes, I would love to write this feature film. As far as my own personal projects, I... I'm incredibly enamored of shorts, of short films. So I usually head in that direction by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're really fun to watch. They're really fun to make. They're quick to make, reasonably so. quicker than a feature, of course. And if something doesn't feel right, then I might try putting it up elsewhere. A nice thing about shorter form anything, and even if you're going to develop it into something huge um which is something i've been doing while pitching i have intent to pitch things to be series to be six seasons in a movie or you know a longer project
1: which is a whole art form by itself pitching
2: yes Uh, and one i hope to master or at least uh get your game up yes get get my game up (laughs) So any of these things that are going to be longer, I always start with a shorter version of them because if I have a 10-minute script, I can always write that out in 10-minute prose and be like, oh, does that look like a book? Or I can put up the 10-minute script on a stage and be like, oh, does that look like a play? I could maybe shoot it or create some drawings. I probably wouldn't fully animate it unless I decided it was animation. But uh, one of the things I'm doing a lot lately as as a pitching creator, is to make short film versions of most of my projects so that in the absolute worst case scenario, I have an awesome short film. And in the best case scenario, I have six seasons and a movie. So, right. yeah, it's, it's all, again, running around with that oddly shaped peg and seeing where it fits, but uh, not, not spending all my resources in doing the full-blown thing until I know where it fits. I mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to ask one more process question before mm-hmm. we move on to like abstract stuff. You you talked a little earlier about working for WB Animation mm-hmm. on Scooby Doo, and you've already dispelled part of part of the reason we do this show mm-hmm. is we bring in different departments to find out things. And obviously, he knows cinematography, and I know yeah. production management. But uh, I assumed writing for these types of things was like 12 people in the room with the you know the big boardroom table, yeah. and as a head writer, and people are pitching out ideas. But you're implying that it's actually more for a, for a lot of these shows. You go yeah. off and write a script, and you bring that back to one person to a group. Take us through like a, an we, episode of,
2: of yeah Scrooby-Doo. to one person. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. So Idiot Test actually did have a room, and we we're everything we were creating was very short because they were one question at a time, one puzzle at a time. So there are I think about five of us, and we would sort of mock up a bunch of ideas and pitch them to one another and help improve one another's ideas, which ideally is how the way, the way that the writing process would work all the time for me, because I love the collaboration. On the reality shows, I just was sent freelance scripts initially to create and send back and never even saw the head writer until I was the head writer, and then, uh, Most of the people who I sent scripts to were people who I already knew were excellent and timely and professional. So that was handy. And then coming on to Scooby-Doo, sort of the same thing where I start as a freelance writer. And I do go and pitch with the producer, uh, the producer slash head writer. And we sort of break the story together, which is great because I will willingly admit story is not my favorite thing and maybe not my forte.
1: Define break the story real quick.
2: Okay, so breaking the story would be sort of deciding the problem and how it's going to get solved and how the protagonist is going to get thwarted and maybe also what the B story in that same uh, progression might be and outlining a basic, uh, you know, basic steps.
1: Like is is break, uh, short for breakdown? Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: Break down the story, sort of decide what the steps are. And... I always feel really inept when I'm trying to break a story myself, like with my own original material, and mainly because I always feel so unoriginal, because when you're talking about such kind of basic things, I mean it's it's the the hopscotch uh, you know, numbers from one to ten of the story, and you can only do those so many different ways because they've been done for thousands of years, and there are, you know escape and revenge and all of these things. And so. How I've,
1: many times is Scooby-Doo going to be surprised that that old man did it? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you know, it. How, many, how many times do we have to pull the mask off the guy and be like, <laughs> he did it.
2: I'm going to, I'm going to try to write the episode where they try to pull the mask off. And it's just a monster. In the first oh, few minutes. Monster. Well, they should pull it off in the first 30 seconds.
0: Wait a minute. Are you wearing a mask? That yeah. the start of
2: episode. <laughs> uh, certainly. So. It's hard to feel original, especially in that stage. But where I feel incredibly original and I can be very quick and uh, really enjoy the use of all of my memories and all of my inventions and, and my creativity is in the details because once I have those numbers in place i can build on them and and get really clever and creative with the details and then i feel original but i always get really down on myself trying to do the story so it's always nice to bounce it off someone and with scooby-doo i get to bounce it off the the producer head writer and then once he approves it then i can go nuts and write in all my crazy details cool yeah
1: and so you, you uh you were giving us kind of the rundown so you so at that point you go in you start filling in the details and then you pass it back to the head writer
2: yeah, after after there's a draft available, then I then I pass it back. And depending on the show, I may and the episode for that matter and how busy that person might be and how many notes they might have, uh, I might get it back with notes and say change this joke or justify this line or I think this character's too mean or something like that. I don't think I don't think mean usually comes Why into play the with me. Why r- are
0: wearing roller skates? Why is you know, sti- questions yeah. like that.
2: I yes, and and, a top hat. And, <laughs> and I got a lot of those uh, those sorts of questions on the reality shows. Not dinosaurs wearing roller skates necessarily, but maybe. But in animation, I feel like there's a there's a lot less there's a lot less to question because everything is valid as long as you've set it within the rules that you created for your world. So that's that's why I love animation because no one minds if my dinosaurs are wearing roller skates and top hats as long as I've determined that this is a, a world where the dinosaurs are dapper and like to be mobile.
0: So break down the timeline from mm-hmm. when you first get, when you're first told, uh, you know, we're coming in to discuss episode 11, whatever right. it is, through the end of your process, how much time occurs.
2: So for Scooby-Doo, it's, I get the assignment, I send the producer a bunch of ideas of, well, I want to do it in this location. I want to have this monster. I want there to be this uh, tension or feeling between these two characters. Just a bunch of brainstormy ideas. And two weeks from that point, I go in and we pick one of those or a few of those ideas and we break down the story. And then, knowing already where I'm going... I actually write really quickly. I have about a month to turn in a first draft, but the story is the thing that takes me forever if I'm working on it by myself because of the the aforementioned being hard on myself. But once the story is there, I can pretty much just walk around all day, every day thinking of it, and I carry around my handy little notebook and, and remember to write down...
1: This, this handy little notebook right here? Yes,
2: this handy little notebook in my lap in case I think of anything brilliant or you guys say anything brilliant. And then, of course, I'll look back at She'll it later. She's staring at a blank page later <laughs> <in the book. laughs> Of course, I'll look back at this later and go, what in the world does that mean? I don't understand It's chicken scratch. My own. All well, chicken scratch. Even if I can read it, sometimes I'll be like, turtle golf? What <laughs> What was my... Where was I going? With why was that this? funny? <laughs> yeah, why was it? But it was so hilarious at that moment. So anyway, once once I know my my roadmap, I can be pretty quick because I'm just filling in details and and going nuts with all of the fun, creative critters being weird, zany hijinks, jokes. But I have about a month to turn in the script, and then probably a couple of weeks before I'll either get notes and do another draft or hopefully my draft will be pristine and the only notes will be, you know, you left out this comma and, uh, we need to change this person's name to the name of the executive producer's nephew or something. (laughs) And the producer will just pop those things in because there's no need to send it back for that. And then, and then it's another long arduous process of animating it, you know, storyboards and animatics. And for some of the other shows like sex sent me to the ER Technically, I thought I think when I was originally a freelancer and actually as I gave out freelance scripts, there was a three day turnaround to do a script. But the story was already given to the freelancer like there was an outline already of the story and they would have three days to turn the script around, give it back to me. I would give it back to them that day with notes. They would give it back to me the following day. So it was like five days from story to finished script and then I would polish it. And I suspect part of the reason why I was fortunate enough to be promoted to head writer was after two or three three-day scripts, the head writer at that time that was giving me scripts said, oh, we're, we're really far behind. Can you do this in 48 hours? Can you do this one in 48 hours? Can you do this one? And so I started turning around scripts in 48 hours. And uh, I guess my, my hustle yeah. and hopefully my accuracy during that hustle was the thing that uh, that made them say, oh, well, we, we have the one head writer leaving. Maybe we bring in Libby because she's fast and accurate.
1: We, we brought you here to get the the head writer approach to the business. So now from here on out, we can't interview anymore. Or no, it, it has to be only a head writer or above. Did you have a, a, a head, head writer? Uh, a, a, story, a showrunner? Showrunners, yeah.
2: yes. Showrunners runners and creators and the head writers who are, are lucky enough to currently be in, in rooms where all the writers are in the same room and everybody can uh, you know, throw things at each other.
1: There's a lot of talented people in television that, that do it like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and those are some of the rooms that I am hoping are, are my next rung on the ladder is to go play in the room with all the weird people, which is also why I, I get out and do do improv and, and those sorts of things so that despite having to, well, having to and getting to write in my pajamas in my bed or write in a coffee shop.
1: Oh, shucks. I have to stay in bed today.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. Those, those people with the laptops in the coffee shops are actually doing something? I, <laughs> some I find of that
2: us, hard to believe. Some of us are. I I actually have a, I run a tab at my favorite coffee shop in North Hollywood, Moby's, and I keep a dinosaur mug there. Plug that uh, in. Dinosaurs, also a big theme, yes. <laughs> and uh, and they make me a mocha with marshmallows. <laughs> and I try to sit down and drink my mocha out of my dinosaur mug and write 10 pages. And if I can't write the 10 pages right away, I go for a walk around the block and go, oh, I'm thinking of things, I'm thinking of things, and I come back and I write them down.
1: That's cool. That's a way to do it. We wanted to uh, bring you in here not only to talk about your position as a, as a, as a head writer and what mm-hmm. that entails, but also... You know, can you dispel the stereotype of the, the crazy writer locked away in a dark room, fervently working on a, in a feverish pitch? Uh, you know, like what is what is it to be a writer?
2: Can I dispel that? Well, it depends on the writer, of course. And I am not that writer, but I know a few of those writers who don't go to coffee shops and don't go for walks and hide yes. out and they're I have to write the script somewhere. Yeah. I don't actually know what they do in their house because they are hiding out. I in my imagination, they go sit in a corner somewhere with their laptop and their head down and don't look at me <laughs> <laughs> and crack it all out. I am not that writer, and, uh, and a lot of other writers I know um, gain a lot from improv. Improv, I think, for me, is more valuable, has been more valuable than taking writing classes or certainly knowing all of the structure is incredibly important, but as far as generating ideas and having fun and being energetic, especially for... The type of writing i do which is energetic comedy fun writing most of the time the forger was not an energetic fun no, comedy but no. uh but it did have its its elements it was a little more like life is beautiful where the the protagonist was still trying to be humorous if not darkly humorous right. in, in order to keep everyone's spirits up so I like to make sure I get out and improvise at least once a week so I can run around with friends and and build some energy, if not some ideas as well. And I like to collaborate with people. So when I'm working on original material, I don't have one writing partner, but I love to grab people I know who are talented in a way different than the way that I'm talented, so that we can sort of share those ideas, but depending on the project. So uh, I have a friend, Noah Martin, who I'm working with on like a sci-fi, odd couple kind mm-hmm. of story because he's great at aliens and space and uh, gross jokes, which is not a thing I do. And I
1: You've got class. Yeah, I've got class.
2: <laughs> like sex sent me to the ER and I still <laughs> didn't know I was pregnant. Uh, so it's nice to, to tone down his grossness and he can sort of... Uh, add those types of gags to my nerdiness and it's a good team up for that particular project or like with with jenny on this book and i have this excellent illustrator so we sort of pool our talents and and do something uh, that's the best of all of our things so depending on the project i love to work with people i'm i'm not a, a reclusive writer
1: um do you okay so let's break it down a little bit mm-hmm. for uh the younger or more uh, nubian listeners of the okay. podcast um Taking it back to uh, way back when, yeah. what are some of the books that you used as references to get you going? Um, the Writer's Journey, Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, um, Story by Robert McKee. Any of these? Uh, Sidfield yeah. Screenplay by Sid Field. Any of those?
2: Uh, story, definitely. Yeah, people seem uh, to like that one.
1: I yeah. haven't not. i have I've read uh, Save the Cat, Writer's Journey, but I haven't read yeah, uh, Story. Yeah,
2: Story and um, Making a Good Script Great. Okay. Which I just um, just spotted on the shelf of a, of a used bookstore the other day, and I was tempted to reach for it and then I was like oh wait I already own that book I've read it (laughs) several times has sort of a rainbow rainbow colored spine. I actually really liked reading uh, Here's the Kicker and Poking a Dead Frog which are more about different writers journeys and experiences than actual structure. I feel like and it it has been a long time since I was picking up the structure. I mean, it's sort of innate now, and I use Final Draft, which sort of also makes it super easy for me because I just hotkey, 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 and it puts in my character where the character goes and my parenthetical where the parenthetical goes. Right. But I have found that the best resources for learning the structure of a script are scripts. You know, get a hold of all the scripts of things you like, and as I mentioned before, I like to go back and sort of read the source material. So, for instance, um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a movie that I like very much, and I've read the script. And the source material for that is a book called Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Uh, Halliday is the author. I can't think of his first name right now. But it's really interesting to go and, you, and in, in looking at the pieces of the process, you learn the process without someone saying, this is the process. You know, you, you see the similarities and what was what was mined out of the book mm-hmm. for the screenplay and then what was embellished or changed and kind of start to understand why it was changed as a more contemporary audience versus the book I think is a nineteen forties ish dime novel, a detective novel. So I personally have always gained more from actually exploring the process myself and sort of determining what bits of wisdom I can glean by watching masters do that process. Yeah, Yeah. some
1: would say that uh, adapting a novel for for a screen is just, you don't even touch it. Some people don't even, I've heard, you know, like famous directors and studio execs say, don't even bother. Just mm-hmm. just write something fresh. There are two different, you know, uh, long form storytelling versus, you know, in essence, a movie is a version of a short film, or excuse me, a short story. Right. You know, in that, you know, you can finish a short story in two hours, whereas a novel you have to take a lot longer to process. Yeah. That's a whole different, uh, whole different ball game. Like that's a whole another podcast is, is is adapting, you know, adapting stuff and how and what your writing process specifically right. is. Well, uh,
2: yeah, adapting is certain certainly a different process or its own process but even if you look at like i'm not sure how many of them are available online but i know you can go to the wga library uh down by the grove and look at old drafts of screenplays and you can see where they started and where the middle process was and where the end result happened and what was changed in between or even for me like with television uh i'll get get the script if i can and watch the show and say, okay, well, here's where this moment happens, here's where this moment happens, and here's how they decided to sort of create this formula for the story, which again is my, my less strong point, is building the story and go, oh, okay, it's a formula, I see it now, Right. I can build all the details on top of that.
1: Being able to identify what the formula needs to be for whatever the output that you're trying to get yes. together is a really crucial part of the job.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Truth or fiction? Write drunk, edit sober.
2: Uh, truth. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: That's it. That's the whole question. That's it. Huh, that's that, the whole that was question.
2: it. <laughs> it's just a yes or no question. Okay.
1: That came up in our in our round of uh, draft, question drafting, as we were trying to trying to uh, uh, you know create a feel, just yes. kind of see where you stand on some of these things.
2: Yeah. Well, yes, I I wouldn't say drunk. Uh, I don't know how useful drunk is to anyone in anything they're trying to accomplish, unless being drunk is the thing you're trying to accomplish. <laughs> but uh, write while drinking, absolutely.
0: Do you drum while drinking?
2: Uh, Yeah, actually.
0: Okay, well,
2: fair yeah. enough.
1: So we talked a little about your class, but maybe, uh, maybe you can break us down a little bit of, uh, do you write high concept at all? Is that, uh, you know... Something in your ballpark, in your wheelhouse?
2: Define high concept in this Would you define high concept for us? All right. Hmm. I guess I would think of high concept. I feel like high concept and edgy both are very nebulous ideas. I think they're very different to everybody. I think high concept is usually defined for myself personally as being um, intended to change the hearts and minds of the audience, not necessarily to provide an experience for the audience, but to change their political views or change their uh, social views or or that kind of thing. That's how I think of it. And
1: So propaganda.
2: Propaganda, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Veiled propaganda, well veiled propaganda. Uh, so that's what I would normally consider to be high concept because everything else is uh, exciting, but it's entertainment. It's not setting out necessarily for a larger purpose. And that's in that definition, I don't now write high concept because I usually set out to primarily entertain and uh, you know, help people escape, which is a, is a fun and necessary thing. But going back to our discussion about females and minorities and uh, people not getting their due in the media or not getting the spotlight that they should be getting, I have been thinking a lot lately, like in the last year, about what I can personally do to help improve that conversation. Besides just casting, because when I have short films, it's easy for me to cast my female minority friends. Again, I just cast the best people, and the best people I know are a wide pool of diverse, awesome actors. So it's easy to do that. But um, the very curious question, and I will ask this question to you. Here it comes. It's kind of a loaded question. Is in animation specifically, Like if I have a bunch of anthropomorphic gadgets, like if I took this lovely recording studio and all of these speakers and keyboards and computers were alive, I could cast diverse voice actors. But how do I tell you that that's a Hispanic speaker and that's a black keyboard and that's a female uh, computer without being stereotypical in my language?
1: Without using writing cues, is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, without having it be so obvious as to the speaker sounds like Speedy Gonzalez and the keyboards talk and jive because that's also a big gray area where you can say, "Sure, those stereotypes exist because there are certainly people who talk like that, and I know people who talk like that, but am I offending somebody right. by having a jive keyboard? maybe
1: yeah. Um, I don't have a. I don't think I have a solid answer that would that would get us there. Other than you know having these things come through in the writing and understanding the characters themselves, yeah. and then maybe putting backgrounds to those characters uh, as you see fit. That's the only way I would be able to. But I would generate an answer.
2: Yeah.
0: You're saying it's a tightrope without making the problem worse.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> well, for animation in particular, I think that it's because animation is my my forte. That's, that's where I've been thinking of, like, how can I not only improve the visibility of all of these voices, but in animation, when I'm not even using people, because, of course, like, if I'm using people, then it's easy to, to show that. But if I'm using gadgets or, or roller skating Tyrannosaurus, then uh, how do I... Share the voices of diversity, and certainly through the story and or through their backgrounds. So I've been thinking about that. That's a it's a quandary I've been ruminating on for a little while. So, if, so it uh, was
1: a little bit of a rhetorical question. You weren't necessarily expecting the answer.
2: Well, if you had it, I thought I was going to write I, it down. There you go. I thought you had one book.
1: tucked away under your your uh, no, top hat. I
2: was going to be like, oh yeah, Lewis has the answer, and I was going to be brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Right, right, right. No, oh, our
1: page is still blank, ladies. <laughs> it's <and> still <laughs> gentlemen.
2: it's still blank.
1: So um, I guess then maybe we'll take it into a different uh, into a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about let's uh, let's talk about the younger generation. Uh, what advice uh, do you wish you'd been given when you were getting going that you had to learn along the way that maybe you just wish somebody would have told you?
2: I wish that somebody would have told me that everything gets delayed. That no- I mean and this is true in life too. Nothing works as quickly as you think it's going to. But especially in L.A., even after contracts are signed and you have the contracts sitting on your desk, your deadline gets pushed back, which means that your invoice gets pushed back, which means that your check comes later. And then even after all those things happen and they have the script, they might come back to you months later and say, uh, we need to rewrite this. Or we decided to throw it out and hire somebody else because now we're not writing uh Uh, animated comedy now we're writing a a dark sci-fi and the way that things can get rebuilt and fall apart and rebuilt and fall apart and then completely raised and something brand new put on top of them continues to be a complete mystery to me and i try to uh hold off on celebrating until the check is cleared and and i try not to feel defeated ever which is you know (laughs) are hard to do but i try to remember that uh the surprises come just as often in, in the positive variety as they do in the negative variety but i'm consistently blindsided by whatever is going to happen because you think that something is going along one way and it takes one person to show up and be like not a musical anymore now it's a novel
1: Let's take it the other direction. What okay. about the pitfalls? What are some of the biggest pitfalls that you or other people that you know have fallen into because obviously it's a business for thick skin mm-hmm. um, it's a it's for people with perseverance. you know what are some of the pitfalls?
2: I think the pitfalls are kind of in that same vein where if if someone if someone has I just lost my train of thought. I'm Don't sorry. mind the roofing going on yes. upstairs. <laughs> yes. they're re- they're redoing the whole roof with elephants, evidently. <laughs> Elephant roofers. They had to wearing uh coveralls
1: and top hats. And
2: top hats. <laughs> Everyone is very dapper in the animal kingdom. <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of habitashers for for large animals. animals. Yes. yes. So pitfalls we were discussing. <clears throat> so I think some of the pitfalls are if someone doesn't love you right away, or you might even think they hate you, this has certainly happened to me. I thought I thought this director uh, just did not like me at all. He'd, he'd give back my scripts and go, uh, this joke is stupid, this joke is stupid, this joke is stupid. And sometimes on set, he would just improvise over my whole script. And I naturally, I think, assumed that he was not a fan of mine. And then... Uh, Maybe eight months later, he recommended me for a job, and I got a new job because of his recommendation. And so I think one of the pitfalls is buying too much into appearances, and so it's always helpful for me to maintain every relationship, as long as it's not detrimental, Detrimental, yeah, abusive in, in some way. But to maintain all these relationships because you never know where your next job is coming from or who is a bigger fan of yours than you thought. And another big pitfall that I've seen that has certainly happened to me and I've seen happen to a lot of people is celebrating before the check clears. <laughs> it's going, oh yeah, I got contracted for this thing. I'm going to go buy myself a whatever, leather jacket. And then they go a whole different direction and you don't get to invoice and you don't get your money and you... Oh, $100 for a leather jacket.
0: Duly noted. Yep. Describe your job in five words.
2: What a very interesting challenge. Hold on. Wait, maybe that was five words too. (laughs) It was. What a very interesting (laughs) challenge. Well, that's one way to describe my job in five words, uh, accidentally and serendipitously. I would otherwise say...
0: We'll let it out. Sup- this big pause. Yep. Uh, take out. Take a moment if you need it. No, no, big pause.
2: Uh, how about surprising content created by committee?
1: There you go. Um, are you familiar with the term cinematic immunity? Have you heard it before?
2: I have not. Okay,
1: I guess we'll edit that. Edit that out as well.
2: <laughs> what do you tell me? Uh,
1: cinematic immunity is an old term. Uh, you see it get used a lot in the entertainment, uh, like uh, in physical production. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that uh, a movie crew could go to some park, right, and you know, put all their grip stands on the flowers and the plants and, you know, get away with it and nobody cares because they've got cinematic uh, immunity yes, okay. or that they could shoot on the street until 3 a.m. and shine lights into other people's uh, apartments or whatever because they've got cinematic immunity right. or, you know, uh, take it in a different direction. You know, studios back in the day would cover up... Uh, uh drunk driving accidents because they had some you know a form of cinematic immunity these Mm. these types of things have just uh so it's just something i've heard along along the way oh yeah and so i know that we'll be asking that of a lot of our guests Mm -hmm. and uh editing they in this situation we'll just cut it right out so Mm. um uh so i guess then i guess then uh it brings us into this landing here Mm -hmm. what keeps you going is it fun? Is it the need? Is, it the, is there something inside that just... Are you in it for the money, the power?
2: <sighs> I'm not in it for the money or the power. The I fame. It has hope, to be the fame. I then. hope someday to also have some money and some power. <laughs> one day, one day, that's a thing I might also have. Def, definitely for the fun. I mean, it, it is incredibly fun creating things, and it is doubly fun watching them come to fruition, Which is why, regardless of how many things I write for other people, I always write and create my own things, because when you write for other people, you never know if it's actually going to get finished. Hopefully, it is. And uh, in television, again, it's a little quicker moving machine, so I think it's a little more likely. But uh, again, I don't celebrate until it's on the air. The check is cleared. I can actually watch it. But... One of my very favorite things as a writer is to watch awesome actors and directors and cinematographers make what I already was egotistically thinking is pretty good. Awesome. You know, someone reads a line that I thought was a a justification or an exposition line and they read it in such a way that it is the most hilarious line of all the jokes in my script or the cinematographer shoots this beautiful shot and I It just completely elevates not only what I wrote, but what I thought I wrote. It makes it better than I thought it could be. And, uh, again, that's where that collaboration comes in because I get to hang out and be weird and have fun and make awesome things with super people. Yeah.
1: Right on. Well, um, well thank- there's
0: only one last thing. During this conversation, and nobody knew about this, uh, Zoe hacked into your email, yes. and she got uh, the outline for one of your shows coming up. Uh, I see here that it's prom night, maple syrup bottle, and hubcaps for a 72 Pinto hatchback. I look forward to seeing that episode. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you. It's That's all in the uh,
2: details. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you.
1: Well, uh, thank you for stopping by. Um, Make sure to grab your notepad and your Stetson on the way out. Yes. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Libby.
2: Okay, thank you.
1: Hey, everybody, we hope you had a good time listening to Libby Ward and the two of us chuckleheads over here having a good time.
0: Maybe they didn't have a good time. Maybe they learned something. Maybe they were inspired I to like go it. out and do something. And it's not always about having a good time,
1: Lewis. Yeah, you're right.
0: Learning is hard. Learning is hard. It's also fundamental.
1: You know what else is hard? Change. Change is hard. Making change is awful. I will quote Matt Knutson from an earlier episode who said, change is hard. That's why most people don't do it. Oh,
0: now you're pimping earlier episodes. Now, if somebody hasn't heard that episode, they need to go to the website. They're going to download that. That's crazy, Lewis. What else could I do on the website?
1: You could easily search Matt Knutson uh, from an earlier episode of Cinematic Immunity Season 1 on our searchable database right there at www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. As always, you can check out all of our social media goodness, Uh, Instagram, that's at Immunity Podcast Uh, uh, Twitter, also Immunity Podcast, Facebook uh, you can check out our stuff all of that goodness there, plus you can check out our blog, Uh, everything is there, free readily available, stylized photos all that goodness is right there on the website, and uh, we hope you have a good time, checking it out seeing the other goodness. Should
0: I try and spread the word?
1: You should definitely spread the word
0: Is cinematic immunity the word?
1: (laughs) If it didn't have a space between it, it would be the word. It's true. But you could hashtag it, then it would be the word. Interesting. Mm. Not overly interesting, but
0: interesting nonetheless.
1: Let's think about that. All right, everybody, have a great week. We'll be back next week with more on cinematic immunity.